Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Matt Weibel. I'm a director of government affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, we're going to get started with today's briefing um, on rethinking America's highways. We're going to have time for Q&A at the end, so please hold your questions until then. And with that, I'd um, turn it over to Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute to introduce our panel and get us started. Thanks a lot, Matt. Um, and thank you all for coming today. Uh, we're delighted to have two uh, truly top experts on highway policy here today, uh, Bob Poole of Reason Foundation and Jonathan Gifford of uh, George Mason University. Uh, we'll be talking about Bob's new book, uh, Rethinking America's Highways, a 21st Century Vision for Better Infrastructure. Uh, Bob's book examines the structure of U.S. highway ownership and financing uh, and describes why major reforms are needed. Uh, the nation's highways are getting more congested, uh, and it's an open question how we will be funding uh, America's highways uh, down the road in the future. Uh, Bob's book reflects his deep understanding about the economics and engineering of highways. He provides historical context for his reform ideas going all the way back to the first toll bridge in America in 1785. He puts uh, U.S. highways in international context. He describes, for example, how, how uh, European countries have more experience with uh, told highways and privatization of highways uh, than we do. Uh, Bob's book regards the institutional structure of highways, which is different than the opt often superficial discussion we have here in D.C. The D.C. highway discussion often focuses on just the total amount of spending we do, uh, but the more important issue is ensuring that the spending we do on projects uh, creates net value uh, with returns higher than the costs. D.C. policymakers also often focus on the jobs created in highway construction. Uh, but labor is a cost of project, not a benefit, so policymakers should focus on generating long-term net value. And finally, spending advocates often decry potholes and deficient bridges, but the optimal amount of wear and tear on infrastructure is not zero, else we'd be uh, spending an infinite amount of money. So the challenge is to spend the right amount and to focus that spending on the most needed repairs and extensions uh, and expansions, and to do that, we need to get the institutional structure of highways right, and I think that's what Bob's book is all about. Uh, Bob Poole is Director of Transportation Policy at Reason Foundation. Uh, he co-founded Reason Foundation back in 1978, uh, and he served as President uh, of the Foundation for two decades. Uh, with Bob's leadership, Reason's been on the forefront of lots of infrastructure of policy, highways and air traffic control and, and airport reforms. Uh, and privatization for many uh, years. Uh, Bob earned his BS and MS in mechanical engineering at MIT uh, and did grad work at NYU. Uh, a 1988 paper by Bob proposed um, private tolled highway lanes, uh, which ultimately inspired California to uh, put in place the first uh, uh, private tolled highway lanes uh, in the United States in many decades. Those are the 91 express lanes in Orange County California. Since then, over 20 states have uh, implemented legislation allowing for private financing and private tolled highways. Uh, over the years, Bob's advised many ad administrations on transportation policy. He's advised governors and state DOTs and the Federal Highway Administration. He's written in, uh, and edited many uh, books on uh, transportation policy, uh, including the first U.S. book uh, that focused on contracting out or privatization of government services, which was published way back in 1980. Uh, Bob writes frequent columns for Reason uh, Foundation uh, and for Public Works Financing Magazine, which is kind of uh, the Bible of the, uh, the, the PPP transportation uh, uh, industry. 
After Bob, we're uh, delighted to have Jonathan Gifford uh, give comments on Bob's book and highway policy in general. He's a professor at George Mason University's Schar School of Policy and Government and director of GMU's Center for Transportation Public-Private Partnership Policy. Uh, Jonathan oversees a really impressive team uh, of transportation scholars out there at GMU. Uh, his 2003 book uh, was called Flexible Urban Transportation, which was a sweeping uh, reassessment of U.S. highway and transit policy. He's also an expert on the role of technology uh, in highway policies, an expert, for example, on the Easy Pass highway uh, toll system. Uh, Jonathan has twice chaired committees of the National Academy of Sciences looking at intelligent transportation systems. Uh, he's got a BS in civil engineering from Carnegie Mellon and an MS and PhD in civil engineering from UC Berkeley. His dissertation examined the development of the interstate highway system, so he's the perfect uh, uh, guest today to comment on Bob's book. So with that, I'm going to hand over the podium to Bob. I think he's going to talk for about 30 minutes, and then uh, Jonathan's going to give uh, some comments on Bob's book, and then we'll uh, go to Q&A. Thanks a lot for coming again. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here today, and uh, uh, thank you all for coming. I started doing serious work on uh, transportation policy in 1988, and uh, at that point, uh, these were the main problems that were facing the country. Chronic traffic congestion, pothole pavements, uh, deficient bridges, uh, pork barrel projects, and fights over gas tax increases, the prime funding source. Well, I'm sad to say that those problems are all with us still today, and in some cases they're worse. That really raises a question of, of uh, what are we doing wrong <laughs> and can we do it better to, uh, to really try to solve some of these problems? You know, this is what people face every day out, you know, you, most of you, you live in a metro area that you face that. These numbers are actually about six years out of date, uh, but 160 billion a year is, is the number in the book because I didn't have newer numbers at the time I wrote it. Inrix, the big data firm, uh, now does uh, annual studies on this. Their number is about 60% higher than this of the – and this is only the direct cost of congestion in wasted time and wasted fuel. It leaves out completely the effect – the negative effect on an urban area's economic productivity from the time wasted and from the positive sum transactions that don't take place because people who live too far from a potential job don't bother taking the job, and uh, uh, so the economy is underperforming. Potholes nationwide, uh, um, this is it's a bigger problem than many of us realize. Uh, a group called The Road Information Project, TRIP, does studies every year, or every other year, I think it is, uh, on urban areas and on the nation as a whole. There's some numbers you can see on the screen of the annual cost to vehicle owners of uh, the wear and tear and depreciate, increased depreciation on their cars due to poor condition of pavement. This is a recognized model that uh, transportation engineers, civil engineers have developed. It's not something they made up to make big numbers. And it's uh, kind of frightening numbers. These are some of the worst. I put them on purpose for impact. But still, uh, three-digit uh, annual uh, numbers like that are, are, should be of concern. That's the I-35 bridge that collapsed uh, in Minneapolis in 2007. Uh, and uh, we have an appalling number of deficient bridges nationwide. This is a problem that varies a whole lot by states depending on how responsibly uh, the legislature and the state DOT make decisions about what to spend money on. But those are some of the worst. Uh, uh, and, and, and these numbers, we have been making progress. 
Over the last two decades, that percentage has been gradually inching downward, but there's still an appalling number. Uh, that's, of course, Sarah Palin, uh, uh, and the bridge to nowhere was uh, uh, the emblem that finally led to a congressional ban on, on earmarks. Um, that is, there's now a lot of discussion I'm uh, concerned about in Congress of bringing back, uh, removing the earmark ban, and uh, uh, Katie bar the door. Uh, and then we have battles over gas tax. I mean, the gasoline tax was invented in Oregon in 1919 as a user fee. It was the best proxy for a toll, uh, and because most cars got the same amount of miles per gallon, it seemed like a reasonably fair uh, way for people to pay for roads. And uh, within 10 years, all 48 at the time states had gas taxes along the same model. And uh, uh, what's happened over time, both at the state level and at the federal level, is that the gasoline tax has morphed into kind of a general funding source for anything that can possibly be identified with transportation, including uh, bike trails and, 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 uh, uh, and a huge amount of, of transit funding. Things that were traditionally responsibilities of cities, counties, and states, uh, and a large fraction of state highway spending that traditionally was done by the state itself is now a federal responsibility. And so this has made I think there's a direct connection between the unpopularity of increasing the federal uh, gas and the gasoline diesel tax and the, it's becoming something far different from the original user fee, user pay, user benefit that it was intended to be. So in thinking about deciding to write a book, I said, well, let's, let's start with a vision of what, could, what we would like to see. Uh, a better future would have let's say, largely uncongested. You know, I have enough economics understanding that I don't, zero congestion all the time is probably not the economically efficient thing to do, but certainly the, what we have now is grossly uh, unacceptable. But so largely uncongested freeways. Dedicated truck lanes on major long-distance routes, because uh, there's a, a strong case for that. It's, it's, it's laid out in the book. No toll booths anywhere, because we don't need toll booths in order to charge people directly these days. Uh, Excellent maintenance. Uh, again, not, as Chris said, not necessarily no potholes ever, but uh, uh, much better than the situation we have now. The ability to expand uh, uh, highway capacity when and where needed without huge battles over uh, how do we find the money and so forth. And a true user's pay, user's benefit system that uh, uh, would, uh, would make it very clear to people what they're spending uh, and what they're getting for it, as opposed to it being completely non-transparent today. Now, how do we get to, something, to anything close to that vision? It was what I set out to try to do in the book. The first question I had to answer is, why is the present system so bad? And I concluded, and I started coming to this conclusion about 20 years ago, uh, maybe we have the wrong institutional model, was my hypothesis, and I realized People are starting to say, well, highways, highways are a network utility. Well, okay, yeah, that is, that is sort of largely true if you look at their form and function. But all the other network utilities are organized, have a different institutional framework, and it's all basically the same. Uh, well, let's, let's, okay, the same, they're, they're businesses that charge you directly, to, to, to put it simply. And, and people know what they're paying. All of these things, except highways, uh, People get a bill every month, 
uh, based on exactly how much they use. How many kilowatt hours did you use that month? How many thousand gallons of water? Uh, depending on your, your cell phone plan, you know, how many minutes did you use, or if you have an all-you-can-eat plan, so on and so forth. Cable, uh, you know, what, what package do you have, and so forth. Only in highways, people have no idea. And if I raised hands in this room, people, your guesses would probably be all over the place. Now, but these figures, I got, they're, again, they're the ones in the book, they're about five years out of date because it takes a long time to write a book. Uh, but this is the number uh, in 2010 dollars uh, that I derived in about 2012. $46 was the average uh, per household uh, spent on state and federal fuel taxes. Now, state fuel taxes vary all over the place. So this was the national average. In some states, it's higher. Some, it's lower. But that's – now, you look at what people are getting for highways and what they're getting – well, electricity, when you turn a switch, it's there, you know, the vast majority of the time. Uh, you know, when you turn on your cell phone or if you just pick it up and want to make a call, it doesn't drop out. It's there. When you want to go somewhere on the highway, you can't be sure you're going to get there. It's, it's, the service quality is terrible. Now, how, how are highways different? Well, all the others are businesses. You pay the business directly based on how much you use. You get a bill that shows that. So it's transparent. You know exactly what you're doing. And only the highways are the only one that isn't, doesn't operate at all like that. Milton Friedman uh, uh, sent me a paper uh, when, he, when I started working on highways in about, about 1990. He sent me a paper that he and Daniel Burston had written in about 1953, analyzing the highway dilemma in the United States. This was before the Interstate Highway Act of 56. And he said basically, Highways are a socialized industry. They're, they're divorced from the market. There's no pricing other than a few toll roads. There's no financing uh, of long-lived uh, facilities. No, no customer. Now, this is something I learned in working with state DOTs. Uh, you, as a driver, are not a customer. You are a user, and that is how you're, de how you're described in all of the literature, that is how you're treated as a user, not a customer. If, you, if you're with the toll road, in general, you're treated as a customer, but not for, not for highways. Uh, there are politicized decisions on what to build in Congress and in state legislatures, and maintenance tends to get the leftovers through a process that I describe uh, in the book. Now, highways, could highways be businesses? Well, we have the toll road model, which is a, that is a government, basically a government highway corporation. It's not bad. Uh, it actually works much better than, than state highway departments. Um, we have government water departments in the large majority of American metro areas, but they, are op they operate as companies. You don't pay a water tax to the city council, which then distributes the money and decides what to do with it. You pay a water bill to the water department. It, uses, it can then issue revenue bonds against that revenue stream and, and build and maintain facilities. So, I mean, this does not have to be private. It could be modeled like the toll road industry, or it even could be theoretically a user co-op, like we have for electricity user co-op in rural areas, rural telephone co-ops. That's a potential model. Uh, I prefer the private investment. I think there's, and I give some reasons in the book why I think that would work better long term because of different incentives. But the basic thing is a business funded by direct user payment, a direct customer provider relationship. Now, I think this, that we could get to something like this is not completely a pipe dream. Uh, I go to, uh, there's a lot of history in, in the early chapters in the book 
private toll roads, we, private turnpikes, they were called, in the UK, in the 18th and 19th century, the United States. There were thou several thousands of these in the Northeast and Midwest and later on in California before the automobile. Uh, and uh, they were, they were investor-owned, some as non-profit, some as would-be for-profit. Most of them never actually made a profit. And when railroads and canals came along, they were, they were either less costly or faster for moving freight than the, than the turnpikes, so that, that cut into the turnpikes. But at any rate, that was, that's part of our heritage. But then the 20th century, post-World War II, we've seen the massive development of uh, investor-owned highways, uh, investor-owned toll roads in France, uh, Italy, Spain, Portugal as the leading ones in Europe. The model is now all over Latin America. All the major, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, uh, Mexico, all have investor-owned toll roads. Uh, in, in, uh, in Australia, Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane, almost all of their urban expressways are investor-owned toll roads. So we've got a lot of experience to draw on and, uh, and this is not something that's just uh, you know, some cockamamie idea. It's something that has real-world history, real-world examples that we can go out and study. We are a latecomer to this party, but uh, right here in Washington, D.C., the Beltway and I-95 express lanes are investor-financed under the same kind of long-term concession or franchise that is used in all these other countries. Um, it, and it's very similar to the electric utility franchises. A lot of, may, a lot of you may not realize that uh, investor-owned electric utilities aren't companies like General Motors that have indefinite life. They exist under a long-term franchise that's typically from 50 to 99 years. And at the end of that, the franchise expires. The government then has the right to uh, make a bid to buy out the assets, to renegotiate for another franchise term, or to put it out to bid and say, who would like to come in and, and buy these facilities and become the operator for another 50 or 75 or 99 years? So. It's very analogous to how these investor finance toll roads are doing. Indiana Toll Road and Chicago Skyway were both government toll roads that were uh, leased for long terms under the same kind of model as is being done for new capacity. And uh, these things are growing. What these are are long-term public-private partnerships. As I said, very similar to the electricity, electric utility franchises. They're financed by a combination of debt and equity. Uh, just like uh, uh, other utilities use, just like railroads and pipelines use. Um, there's significant transfer of risk, especially important in, in what we call greenfield projects, like adding express lanes to the beltway. Nobody really knew if that was going to be a money-making thing or not. And if the state of Virginia had done that, um, the risk of that being uneconomical and not being able to cover the debt service on the bonds would have been on the, on the backs of the taxpayers of Virginia. Instead, it's on the backs of the investors who invested equity or the investors who bought the toll revenue bonds, and they did it with their eyes open. And so if it fails, it's, it's their hit, not the taxpayers of Virginia. Guaranteed long-term maintenance is something that exists partly by conditions in the long-term agreement, but also from the self-interest of the company. And this is true of any toll road or most any toll road in the United States. Um, they tend to be better maintained because uh, if you're the toll road operator, uh, you know that people have a choice between your toll road or a parallel, to some extent, alternate route that you only have to pay the gas tax on. So if you want to attract the customers, you better have a well-maintained road that operates well and uh, that people enjoy using. And so that, 
that is another important benefit here. Now, there's a couple slides, which I'm not going to go into, just showing the largest ones of private investment. And the bottom line number there is $36 billion over the last 15 years worth of projects have, have been financed uh, and are now in operation by uh, investor-owned companies. And I say that's, it's not huge on a global scale, but it's pretty significant and hardly most Americans aren't any aware at all, and most political leaders are not aware that that magnitude is going on. And we've seen some very interesting solutions to uh, that, that private investors and uh, toll road agencies have done to solve complicated problems that people say, oh, well, we can't, there's, we can't, there's no way to invest more in urban highways because there's no room and it's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. Well, here's an example of uh, adding uh, express toll lanes uh, where it was politically difficult to expand outward. Uh, they had uh, room in the, in the right-of-way, in the median, uh, for six-foot pillars uh, that support uh, three reversible uh, express lanes that are inbound to Tampa in the morning and outbound in the afternoon. So they got the equivalent of six lanes because they realized they didn't need the both-way capacity uh, twice a day uh, on six feet of, of right-of-way space in the median. Very clever solution. Here's an example that I drove on in, in the year 2000 uh, of the Melbourne City Link, the first of these investor finance projects in Australia. And that particular structure you see there on the, to the left off the, off the frame is a residential uh, uh, building, uh, a tall residential building that would have been s impacted by the noise uh, from, from the uh, uh, cars trap passing. And the company, at its own hook, put that sound wall in there uh, and made it in, into an artistic feature uh, to shield them from the noise. And my favorite example of all is the missing link on the Paris Ring Road, the A86. Those dotted lines on the left are where the missing link was, about six miles, for 30 or 40 years because that's where Versailles is. And you can imagine the political resistance to putting a six-lane uh, expressway through the middle of Versailles. So finally, one of these investor-owned companies came to the French government and say, hey, if you give us a franchise, we will develop this as tunnel uh, and uh, uh, we'll take the entire cost, we'll charge tolls for it, uh, um, but, but doing it a deep bore tunnel, uh, we will uh, make it uh, so it doesn't disturb anybody. There's, and even put in it right up, up there, the underground interchange, uh, with another big crossroad. They built, would build that and did. And the idea they came up with is uh, uh, making it cars only. They took them a struggle to get the French government to agree because the, the other little tunnel that's in the other, the other angle on the, on, the, on the picture to the left is for trucks only and is just one, one lane each way for trucks. But this is the height there is the same height, clearance height as in parking structures. And so it's for cars only. And uh, that saves because you know, the diameter of the tunnel, the area is proportional to the square of the radius. So they cut the amount of excavation by almost half by, by doing the small dimensions of that sort and th therefore made it affordable from what their projection of toll revenue was. And there's me and, and a guy from the company uh, about six months before it opened when they were just starting to do all the acceptance testing they had to do to make sure all the safety systems work. You can see it does not look claustrophobic uh, in there with just uh, parking structure uh, clearance heights. Now, where does the money come from? Uh, there's, there's a huge phenomenon going on called global infrastructure investment funds. Most of these funds want to invest equity. I mean, like hard money, like the down payment on your house, uh, cash up front, 
in, in viable infrastructure that has a revenue stream that uh, he can invest for long term. And uh, they are one of the prime, and overseas and very recently in the United States, public employee pension funds are starting to see infrastructure as an important diversification of their portfolios. You know, not a big chunk, maybe 5% of the total, uh, but that's a lot of money in public employee pension funds. And uh, this, this is a, a diversification that I think makes a great deal of sense and may have political benefits in making this a more bipartisan issue because these are mostly unionized public employees whose retirement is at risk. And if, uh, if they can uh, say, well, we need investor finance infrastructure to invest in and the barriers that may exist in state or federal policy need to be done away with so that our employees can have a better shot at a decent retirement, that's a good thing. And of course, tolls are the basic revenue stream for, for the vast majority of these projects that these people want to invest in. And you know, we all, all these things in state legislatures and here in Washington, D.C., oh, there's not enough money, there's not enough money. Well, to these guys, the pension funds and the infrastructure funds, the problem is not enough projects, not not enough money. They have tons of money <laughs> wanting to invest. In fact, the top 50 funds uh, as of last year, in the previous five years, had, had raised over $316 billion. And, and it's, look, the estimates are that over $450 billion, that's just about half a trillion dollars has been raised. Some of that's already been invested, but a lot of it is what they call dry powder, waiting for the projects to come along to invest. And they're resting all over the world. The United States gets a very small fraction of the actual investments. A lot of the money is raised here, but not much of it's invested here so far. Uh, so I close out the book largely talking about where, how could we get started in moving toward this model. And uh, what I propose is that uh, rebuilding the aging interstate highway system, both the long distance ones and the urban ones, is, is a, a needed investment that this country is poorly placed to make. It's our estimate from a study that I honchoed at Reason about five years ago is about a net present value over the next uh, 20 or 25 years of a trillion dollars, round numbers. And uh, we, our study estimated that it would be toll feasible to do in all but about five states, like not, not Montana, not Alaska, not uh, Vermont, but, but almost all of them with reasonable uh, toll rates as long as they were CPI adjusted so that the toll rates would go up in pace with inflation, this would be a doable proposition. And uh, we also identified which corridors would make sense to have uh, dedicated truck lanes. And that would be a very popular thing uh, with both the trucking industry and with, uh, with motorists who hate to have huge, huge lines of big trucks that, are, that they can't see around and so forth. Um, free flowing, this, I'm suggesting in the book the second phase would be the, to go to the urban ones uh, because we already are getting private investment in express toll lines like we have here in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, and uh, uh, so, but that would, you still need, gonna need eventually to rebuild uh, most of the urban interstates as well and start putting modest pricing, at least during rush hours, on the regular lanes as well. The Trump infrastructure proposal, whatever may be left of it, uh, could help. It has some provisions in here, uh, some incentives for states to use long-term P3s, public-private partnerships. Very important, it, would, it called for removing the federal ban on tolling interstates, uh, which would be huge if it were done, and ending the federal ban on commercial rest areas. Uh, 
the kind of service plazas that exist on every toll road in America, but are banned by federal law on interstate highways. You cannot have anything more than a vending machine at a rest area on an interstate highway, by law, since 1956, supported by the trucking industry and the truck stop industry, by the way, uh, and some other, other things that would help. Now, finally, just why this actually might happen in, in coming years, coming decades. First of all, we have three looming problems that uh, are going to constrain business as usual. One is the looming insolvency of the federal government. Uh, we don't have to go into that here. I give a few examples from CBO projections and so forth. The dire fiscal problems of state governments, which means that if the federal government has to cut back what it does on highways, uh, the states are not going to be well positioned with their own tax resources to fill the gap, mainly because almost all of them have big, big problems with unfunded pension systems, and that's got to be the biggest priority. And then, of course, as, as uh, uh, Chris mentioned in introducing me, per gallon gas taxes are beginning a long downward slide that means they are not going to be the viable long-term 21st century funding sources for highways, and we're going to have to go to per-mile charges. And so if we start with the, with the major highways, the interstates and other limited access roads, convert them to per-mile tolling, that would be about a quarter of all the vehicle miles of travel would be converted from per-gallon to per-mile uh, by just, just doing that. Then three other factors that would also uh, make this more plausible. Uh, there's growing understanding of the track record of these long-term P3 private investment kinds of projects and their success record being much larger in other countries than it is here, the growth of the global infrastructure funds and the, the need and desire of the pension funds. And as I said, I think because they are mostly public employee pension funds, this could start making this of interest to at least some Democrats and make this a more bipartisan uh, issue when it gets debated in Congress and at state levels. So to conclude my, my lesson in the book, and the text for today, uh, brothers and sisters, is that our highways are failing because they are politicized state-owned enterprises that are not in the market as, as Milton Friedman had the insight uh, 50 years ago. They really need to be configured as real network utilities paid for directly by their customers, just like all of the other utilities. The ingredients, we have the basic ingredients. The per mile all electronic tolling is state of the art across the country today. We have the long-term P3 model. You have it right here on the Beltway on I-95 and coming on I-66 outside the Beltway. Uh, we have companies with impressive track records and we have willing investors. So what's needed is to put these pieces together and, uh, and get the ball rolling. Uh, thank you very much, and I look forward to discussion. Great, and it, is it okay if I close this? Yeah. I don't want to put away the cover of your book, but um, all right. Um, great. So um, it's a pleasure to be here, and, um, and uh, thanks to Cato and to, uh, to uh, our sponsors here in Rayburn for, uh, for making it possible. Um, I'd like to make four points. Um, one, I think it's, a, it's an excellent book. Um, comprehensive, systematic analysis. Bob has pulled together 
work of his own over many decades, as well as from other scholars um, and policy analysts. Um, I think it's clear, comprehensive, um, and, and uh, a, a very solid case uh, for the point that he makes. The second, and I just built on a point that Bob made, that's important. Right now, it is very important. We have some looming infrastructure problems facing our highway communities, and they're deep-seated, and they're significant to the health and prosperity of our national economy, and given our position in the world, the global economy. We're an important economic actor, and so our market is one of the biggest markets, or the biggest highway market in the developed world. Bob alluded to my third point in his, his closing slides about the timeliness of, um, of, uh, of the book. You know, we have an active debate, ongoing debate, about more funding, more funding um, uh, that has been going on for my whole uh, career as well as uh, for Bob's. And um, it's going to remain an issue, I think, for years to come. Uh, there are real weaknesses with our current funding model. And the book makes a clear case um, for why it's broken and likely to get um, a little worse. And uh, also, I think that there are big barriers to trying to make the transition that Bob talks about to a user pays system. Um, intellectually, I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. User pays, uh, I think, is a strong intellectual foundation. Um, our federal budget is stretched and getting more stretched uh, with entitlement liabilities. We have the luxury of being a world reserve currency, and that hopefully will go on for a good long time. But if and when the global market you know, gets tired of, um, of uh, or reaches its appetite for U.S. debt, um, our budget deficit could face you know, sharply larger um, outlays for, uh, for interest payments, and along with this, you know, the rising entitlement liabilities. Um, and support at the federal level for increasing taxes on gas, um, for mileage-based user fees, for allowing tolls, I think it's fair to say it's tepid to weak. There's not a lot of enthusiasm in this building um, or in this town, I think, for, for raising those taxes, maybe outside this room. Um, state and local budgets, as Bob pointed out, are also facing um, rising liabilities. So they have some capacity, but they're no panacea. And they're likely to get um, worse, the reporting requirements for states and localities, uh, to make visible these uh, retiree health and pension liabilities in their financial statements is increasing. And so their creditworthiness to expand their debt or even to roll over their existing debt uh, is, is not a great source of funding, uh, funding for, uh, for transportation and infrastructure more generally. Um, but it should be said that states and localities do seem to have a greater appetite for raising user fees, sales taxes, uh, and imposing tolls. And we've seen some impressive uh, funding initiatives across the country, LA, County sort of stands out as uh, having made uh, enormous commitments to infrastructure funding with long-term, I think, a long-term sales taxes with no sunset. So very long-term funding that can be used to support infrastructure. So as I say, I think the, the proposal in Bob's book is well-timed. Um, and it comes when our leaders are 
searching for better solutions and I think are going to be um, confronting them. My fourth point is that um, much as I believe in the vision of user pays, I have some reservations about a user pays a transportation system and the risks that are inherent in it, and some of which we have already lived through in the last 50 years. Um, it makes sense intellectually, um, but I guess not everyone can pay. Um, we, we have issues about social exclusion, um, and, and I think we need to address that at the same time as we look at user pays. I think user size subsidies are user side subsidies. Uh, you know, optimize the choice that's inherent uh, for individual households and families uh, to make choices about where they spend money and, and how they maximize their opportunities. So not provider subsidies, but user subsidies, and then let the, uh, let the providers compete for the users, uh, for the users' funds. Uh, that's technically quite possible. Um, I think it's an important thing to include in our discussion about a shift um, to user pays. We also have to make, be careful that it doesn't become a broad-based entitlement, not only for those in need, but for everybody, uh, which can then, you know, add to our budget problems, and we don't need more of that. Uh, Alan Pazarski has written a lot about cash calification, about, you know, tolls being such a good source of revenue that as they have been uh, used um, uh, in other countries that, you know, increasing gas taxes and increasing tolls especially can be seen as a source of general funds to support things that are not beneficial to users. And we've actually seen some pretty aggressive moves here in this region um, in, in paying for the Silver Line to Dulles uh, with the tolls paid for by the users on, on uh, the, the Dulles Access Road. Um, and the Virginia Supreme Court has supported the idea that the benefits to users of the toll road are so great uh, that they can triple their tolls and pay for the silver line that will be used by other people because it will relieve tax t traffic on the toll road. I think that's a little, um, a little dicey, but you know we see some of that on I-66 inside the Beltway. For those of you who have seen those stories about the $40 tolls there, I paid $5 myself and was happy to do it the other day. Uh, it's a very good, uh, very good service option, but some of that funding is, um, you know, being allocated to improve transit service in that corridor as well. So uh, again, you're, it's not going directly to users, arguably. We'll see. So that's an issue, this cash qualification. I think we have to be cautious about. But the bigger problem, and this is one that Bob alludes to in his book, is an institutional problem. It's hard to use the money wisely and well. So having a solid source of funding and using it wisely and well I think is uh, important. Chris made this point in his, in his introduction. Um, and there's two dimensions of this. One I think we have a pretty good handle on, and the other I think we have a lot of work to do. The first one is procurement. And Bob alluded to public-private partnerships. I'm the director of the Center for Transportation Public-Private Partnership Policy at George Mason University. Uh, and I'm a big, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm very interested in this as a procurement mechanism. I think it takes care of a lot of the problems that we have, but, you know, two examples in recent history stand out as sort of procurement disasters or disasters in process. One is the San Francisco Bay Bridge, uh, 20, you know, 250 million initial estimate to 
6.5 billion in cost, 2,500% cost increase over the course of the years to replace that project. You know, very significant, uh, not a lot of cost discipline and scope discipline in trying to deliver that project. Tappan Zee is another major project, 4 billion plus financing. Uh, a lot of kabuki theater about who is actually going to pay that uh, when it, uh, when sometime after the election, uh, we'll, we'll may get an, an idea about whether tolls on the throughway uh, and all, you know, that will be paid uh, throughout the New York State throughway system uh, as opposed to just the users of that specific bridge. Um, but those projects, you know, are a little bit concerning about how well we can spend money, but I think public-private partnerships can enhance transparency uh, about what projects actually cost and um, bring some accountability to, um, to bringing, uh, bring them on stream. The other problem I think we have less, uh, you know, we're less well prepared to deal with is what I would call the design problem. That is selecting a portfolio of projects and technologies that will help us find our way into the future. You know, there's a dizzying array of technology coming down the pike at us right now. Automated vehicles, Uber, Lyft, bikes, scooters. I haven't seen motorized trikes yet, but um, uh, given my age, I'll probably be looking for those sometime in the near future. Um, you know, we have a lot happening. So investing uh, funds, you know, long term into projects, I think, is and having the institutions that can select those is a, is a very challenging uh, decision-making process. And I don't know that our state local departments of transportation are optimally positioned, uh, positioned to make those uh, choices and to make sure that our users have a good range of choices uh, available to them so that they can actually express their um, consumer sovereignty and, and, uh, and uh, you know, help us build the system, the future system that we need. Rebuilding the interstate is, is not enough. Just rebuilding the interstate we have is not enough. We need to build a system that's going to support our economy for the coming century, and I think that's, uh, that's important to do. So uh, that, I think, is something we all need to be concerned about, and, um, and I know Bob probably shares that concern. Um, so just to summarize, you know, excellent book, um, important, timely, um, but we have a lot of work to do on how do we build trust in the institutions that deliver infrastructure um, in a user-pays world. And I think especially big problems on procurement, where PPPs can help, and on this design problem, which I think is a, is a very broad and deep problem. So thank you very much for your attention, and I look forward to your questions. We're going to do uh, some questions here, and I think I'm going to let uh, Bob maybe respond to some of Jonathan's comments. Uh, first, one thing I'd like to point out, which I think is really cool, in the front of Bob's book, there's a picture of a, uh, a highway bridge in, the, I think, in the south of France. You would know the name off the top of your head. Yeah. Um, very it's, it's the, it's the Miao Viaduct in, in southern France. And completely privately financed. Completely privately financed, 70-year long-term uh, toll concession uh, by the company that, it's the descend, that built it and operates it, the descendant of the company that built the Eiffel Tower. 
Uh, Bob, do, do you want to respond to anything? Uh, uh, to just well, just uh, a couple points. I mean, I largely agree with all the points that, that Chris made, and thank you. They're all all worth serious thinking about. This book is intended as a start. It's not the be, be all and end all. Uh, one point: the two examples of procurement fiascos that you mentioned, just so everybody here understands, the San Francisco Bay Bridge, Tappan Zee Bridge. Neither of those was a was a private investment deal. Exactly. Uh, uh, so, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yes, just just to make sure those are not an indictment of the P3 model. They're an indictment of the status quo. <laughs> exactly. Well said. That's, well said. And totally accepted. Let's, let's, let's okay, let's, everybody else. Let's open up for questions. Uh, uh, David back there has got the microphone. If you want to go up to this fellow in the, the white shirt. Hi, Bill James with JPods. And if you could expand your, your highway model to also include uh, what we call the, the um, 5x, 5%. So networks that are five times more efficient and roads pay 5% of gross revenues to access rights of way, then Hyperloop and J-Pods and other aspects of the physical version of the internet could be deployed out in this and privately funded. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very open to any of these new technologies. Uh, and, and I think the, the we're a ways from knowing how feasible various ones are uh, in terms of cost and effectiveness and so forth. But uh, this is a great time to be in transportation because so much is coming down the pipeline. Some of it's going to probably work out to be, you know, pipe dream ideas. Others may be very viable and, and worth doing. So uh, I think a climate where private investment is encouraged uh, to do things is more likely to, produce, to get these kinds of things implemented than the status quo state DOT model. I would just add to that, I think trying to reduce barriers to entry yes. so that uh, different services and products can be uh, introduced into the market. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Uber and Lyft model of, um, Bill, what do you call it? Um, yeah, I mean, people <laughs> who just invade markets without regulatory permission. I'm glad they're here. You know, uh, sometimes when I'm stumbling over scooters, I yeah, wonder yeah, about uh, that. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I think uh, just letting the incumbent institutions and providers dictate the set of solutions that we have is, uh, is dangerous and we need to think about ways to open it up to, uh, to, uh, to other yeah. providers uh, with, with new and different ideas. So, and Just one little point. Uh, when I was an uh, uh, undergraduate at MIT studying mechanical engineering, second year we had a, a class project that was looking at what, what amounts to Hyperloop as of today, evacuated tubes underground between Washington and Boston uh, with magnetically levitated uh, vehicles in them. So it's, some of these ideas are not as new as they sound. Uh, down here in the white shirt in front. Uh, so in the Washington area, you have a lot of different roads you can get to work on. You have public transit options, uh, scooters. Uh, so the P3 model here, it is exposed to a lot of competition. Right. Uh, I'm from the Mid-South. Uh, you know, there's only one way to get from Little Rock to Memphis, and that's I-40. Uh, so what's to guarantee that the P3 model, when it is not operating in a state of competition, is an improvement over the status quo? Well, there is, there's a whole chapter about uh, uh, highways as actual utilities. What does that mean in comparison with... with electricity and the others, and do we want to have public utility commission regulation uh, to the extent that they have monopoly aspects or not? I come down on the side of saying no. The global international model is not 
rate of return regulation like we have historically used for when there were telephone monopolies and electric utility monopolies, but rather, first of all, there are some monopoly aspects of highways, like the kind you, uh, long distance one between two cities where there's really no, no other good route. Uh, but in an urban area, there's a lot more competition. The global model is you build in the regulatory controls in the long-term uh, concession agreement. And the state DOT then has the regulatory role of enforcing all of the provisions, uh, maintenance standards, uh, um, other congestion standards, and so forth. Uh, and I think that so far seems to be working well, and especially it's working well in Europe and Australia. It's not working so well in Latin America because they have a somewhat different model there, and, and they can renegotiate at, at, uh, in in too many different ways that, that uh, enrich the companies at the expense of the public interest. But, but in Australia, the United States so far, and in many of the European countries, that model is working better. Nobody is using our, our traditional kind of Public Utility Commission regulation for these in the United States, and I think for good reason. So, uh, Down here uh, in front. Both of you had mentioned I-66 in Northern Virginia. Um, I'm wondering, do you see a problem in the sense that we're tolling a road and not building any new infrastructure on the tolled area? I mean, they're building infrastructure, you said, mentioned transit, and they've talked about expanding other parts of that highway. But um, is that a problem that the money is not going to affect the specific area that's being tolled? Right. I'll say a little bit. Uh, uh Jonathan lives here and knows it probably a lot better than I do. There are there is uh, some lane addition being done on the I-66 inside the Beltway. I don't know how much of that, uh, and it's probably not enough, but politically that may be all they can get an agreement to do. The project outside the Beltway, which is a long-term P3, they are adding lane capacity there, and that one is fully privately financed. Uh, they even actually uh, gave some money uh, as a concession fee to the state that's using it for, uh, for various other transportation improvements in the corridor uh, that includes expanded bus service. So uh, I, I think that is, that's more the traditional uh, P3. Inside it's just pricing by, the, by Virginia DOT. But Jonathan. Uh, yeah, I guess a couple points. The, the Inside the Beltway project is not a public-private partnership. VDOT owns the roadway. Uh, they, you know, they have uh, authorized, uh, the state has authorized the collection of tolls. As Bob says, there is an expansion of capacity. Uh, I think a, an outbound lane or an inbound lane that is being added. Um, and uh, there has been an outbound lane already added, not with these funds, but with other funds out to Sycamore Street or something like that. But, um, but it's in interesting to step back on 66 because it is a very inside the beltway because it's, a, it's an interesting interstate highway story. <laughs> Uh, about the fact that, you know, Arlington County did not want cut through traffic from other jurisdictions, i.e. Fairfax and Loudoun uh, County, to be cutting through Arlington to get in, and they didn't want a big 12-lane highway uh, of the sort that was built, uh, say, along the I-395 corridor. So they successfully, and I think uh, to their credit, insisted on design features being below grade for most of the uh, section inside the county, uh, on on uh, doing that, and it took a lot of political wrangling in order, you know, 20 years of political wrangling to get the consent decree uh, that allowed VDOT to go ahead and build uh, build that highway. So but it's only uh, it's only originally two lanes each way. Right? Yeah, yeah, and two lanes, and at rush hour, um, HOV four and buses were all that were going to be allowed to use it. So we've stepped down from HOV four to HOV three to now HOV two. 
um, and uh, and toll access. So, um, uh, you know, I, I I take your point that uh, it, you know tolling and using the the funds that don't directly affect the users um, is is you know something I I I want to look really closely at. I think the I sixty six inside the Beltway case is an interesting one. Outside the Beltway, um, you know, there is a transit. Uh, support a, a financial commitment f for transit that came out of the I-66 outside the Beltway uh, project. To my disappointment, it went all to incumbent transit providers. <laughs> um, and so uh, I, I would have preferred to either to see Sintra or the concessionaire um, say, we'll offer a service yeah. on our roadway. But uh, I think the incumbent providers managed to get that f those funds dedicated to existing providers. So we may not see n new dimensions of service in, in a way I think is a missed opportunity, but that was the, the deal that was struck. Uh, maybe toward the back there, uh, Dave. Hello. Um, do you think that the solutions you've outlined will be enough to address these problems without uh, taking care of the extreme underutilization of our water highways. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm not aware. Well, I guess there are ferries in New York Harbor and a couple ferries in Boston and in San Francisco and Seattle. But in most places, I don't think there's really very viable uh, possibilities for water transport. Water transportation is also very slow uh, compared to uh, uh, metro or to driving, uh, right? Oh, okay, okay. Well, I do, I do follow the so-called marine highway uh, uh, attempts. Uh, so far, I mean, I've not studied them in detail. My, my general impression from what I have read is that these, they don't look very viable as, as a, a competitive alternative. Uh, even with the congestion on highways, uh, I think that uh, moving a container by, by a, a big, an eight, a class eight, truck is going to be faster and more reliable than moving it on a barge. Uh, so it's going to be hard to see if there's a real market niche there, is, is my guess. But I haven't studied it in a lot of detail. Have you, John? Yeah, I would say, you know, the idea of shifting truck traffic onto marine highways, I think, is, you know, going to be a very small niche of, of traffic that would actually be uh, suitable for doing that. That said, you know, we do have some, uh, you know, locks and dams. We have a Mississippi River system that carries bulk commodities. Yeah. Um, pretty efficiently, which is in you know aching need of reinvestment, and you know because of the uh, the restrictions that are placed on on how much that can rely on user pays, um, you know we we just see an inferior service there that shifts traffic onto rail probably more than truck, right. although some truck, um, and so I think we could make much better use of those um, marine highways, if you will, or those maritime. Uh, facilities that uh, I think present an enormous opportunity given the nature of the products that are in their service, you know, within their service watershed. I mean, it's so, so amazing that when the barge industry lobbies for continuing the status quo with just more government money thrown in, uh, they never mention that the Panama Canal and the Suez Canal charge tolls and are financed based on the toll revenue. And these are wonderful facilities. I mean, they have crap facilities because they pay you know, they pay crap in the way of, of little, little diesel taxes uh, and expect the taxpayers out of the mythical general fund to uh, massively increase the investment. And it's, uh, 
thank God it's unlikely to happen. Uh, they've got to come to terms with reality and start figuring out if you want better, better locks and dams, you've got to start paying for it. Yes, sir. So one of the models that um, I haven't heard as much about is the, the high occupancy vehicle lane where you have a toll lane you know, attached to a public highway. Um, are there significant barriers to private investment for those? Um, are there, do we have HOV lane style infrastructure for trucking? Um, and then I'm just gonna throw in a second question there. Could, are there ways that these same principles could be applied to rail lines? I know that American rail system is kind of, uh, all other countries make fun of it, I'll say that. Um, so is, could these same principles okay. be used in that infrastructure that's as a, well? That's about five questions, but let me, I know, let me, I know. Let me start with the first parts. Uh, uh, HOV lanes uh, that are purely HOV lanes they don't have a revenue stream, so, so they're all done by, by state DOTs, and, and they vastly outnumber the ones that charge tolls. There has been, over the last 20-some years, a conversion of a small but growing number of HOV lanes to hot lanes, high-oxy toll lanes, where instead of only uh, qualifying carpools, people who are willing to pay also can use them. Problem with that is, is that, well, most HOV lanes are either too empty or too full. I mean, you have this you know, too hot or too cold kind of problem. And so the ones that are too full, uh, they're too full mostly in most of the country because they allow two-person carpools in. So they try to put a toll on, and there's a little bit of room for, for cars to squeeze in, which is part the problem on 66 inside the Beltway. There's such so little amount of space at rush hour for paying customers that they all, you know, the price goes way high. If they, if they upped it to HOV3, like on all the other uh, HOVs in this area, you'd have a lot more room for toll pay, and the tolls would come significantly down based on what we can see as market evidence. And uh, uh, we can see that uh, with HOV3, at least in this metro area, private investors are perfectly willing to finance the addition of, of those lanes on the Beltway and the conversion and expansion of the ones on 95 and entirely on uh, adding them on I-66, partly conversion and partly new lanes. So there's definitely a market, but you can't give away most of the capacity because there's, no, not, there's hardly any revenue, so you can't finance it. And the pricing is ineffective. If only 10% if only of, the, of the traffic is subject to the price, you don't have much power over the price. The power, the pricing has to apply to nearly all the vehicles for it to actually work. Yeah, I would just add, you know, that the, the, the conversion of HOV to HOT lanes is, I think, one of the bright spots in yes, what definitely. has happened in the last 20 years. Forward. We're seeing better utilization of investment and highway capacity, so I think that is uh, good. And in many regions, uh, there, you know, I, I know, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth is one, you know, there, there's a network of, of uh, HOT lanes that are, that, are, uh, that, that are available. On your rail comment, that's a whole other panel, but I would just say, you know, uh, the U.S. freight rail system is the envy of the world. Yep. We have the most efficient freight rail system. Our, you know, it, uh, it is a la our passenger rail is uh, not, not so much. Um, <laughs> and I think... You know, I think looking at the costs and the revenues that are associated with that, it's hard to imagine a user pays model that would work because the costs are extraordinarily high. Um, and but we'll see. I mean, there is a new for-profit freight passenger railroad being um, introduced in Cal. Or, it's Florida. opened um, in your neighborhood. First, and the first part of it's open between Miami and West Palm Beach, and. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't, I, they have not released detailed numbers, but uh, I've ridden it twice, once as a, as a demo and once as a paying customer, and uh, it was full on a, on a on 4th of July weekend. Uh, so maybe that's a good sign. I don't know. They've, they've just raised the funding to do the phase two to extend it to Orlando. So, so far, so good. We are out of time. Uh, thanks a lot for coming, everybody. Thanks. Thank you.